through searching land rights issues in the Northern Territory since 1979, just after the Land Rights Act was passed in 1976. And probably more significantly, I chaired a review of the Aboriginals Benefit Account uh, in 1984 for the then Federal Minister for Aboriginal Affairs, Clyde Holding. And some of the issues that are arising now, 37 years on from that review, were recommendations in that report. The Aboriginal Land Rights Act of 1976 is really the high water mark in Australia in relation to land rights and, and also native title rights and interests for Indigenous people. And the main issue there is that people were firstly given inalienable rights to land. In other words, the land that people claimed, which was placed in land trusts, couldn't be taken away from them. And secondly, and really most importantly, uh, people were granted what's sometimes referred to as a right of veto, but fundamentally they were granted free prime form consent rights. In other words, traditional owners have the final say on what happens on their land, even in relation to mining. And, and that's something that you just don't see anywhere else in Australia. Conservative governments in particular have always been very uncomfortable with the Northern Territory Land Rights Act, even though it was passed by Malcolm Fraser, a Liberal Prime Minister from 1975 to 1983. But the thing is about the Land Rights Act is firstly, 50% of the Northern Territory is now held under an alienable Aboriginal title. That's 700,000 square kilometres. It's a massive jurisdiction. Um, and secondly, the rights and interests that um, traditional owners have under the Land Rights Act are superior to those under the Native Title Act. So conservative governments have really been looking to wind back those rights and interests uh, to match those that people get under the Native Title Act and, and those rights don't include a right of veto. They only allow people to negotiate in relation to development on their land. So developmental governments you know, who talk about uh, developing the north, who look to make export revenue and national income out of uh, mineral extraction, obviously see uh, the rights inherent in the Land Rights Act as potentially blocking that sort of extractive development. And so there has been, I think, a concerted effort to dilute, um, you know, the language that's often used is streamline uh, the Land Rights Act uh, to make it, uh, you know, more straightforward for development proposals to be heard. And again, even with these uh, proposed amendments, the rights of the free prime form consent rights of traditional owners remain, but there are other ways that um, those rights and interests can be chipped away at, which we're seeing, I think, uh, with these amendments, but also with previous amendments to the Land Rights Act. Land councils are very unusual uh, institutions in the Australian context. They were set up in 1974, even before the Land Rights Act was passed, and they do have a role to represent traditional owners in relation to their aspirations, their goals in relation to how their land is used. And the fundamental role that land councils uh, played during their first uh, 20, 30 years of operations was to actually claim land for traditional owners. And I think they did that extraordinarily well. But in, in the last decade or so, we've um, come to this period, which I guess some people refer to as the um, post-claims era, if, even though some claims are still outstanding. The majority of claims have now been heard and, have been, and most of them have been successful. 
So now uh, land councils have looked uh, to have a more you know, governmental role, I guess, in managing land. And again, I think one has to recognise in the Northern Territory that we're talking again about half the Northern Territory and the four Aboriginal land councils have statutory roles, they're statutory authorities, and they have roles outlined in the law in relation to how 50% of the Northern Territory is actually managed in terms of resources and land management. The Beetaloo is obviously a massive hydrocarbon resource, but the federal government, collaborating with the Northern Territory government, is very keen to see exploited. This is a highly contentious area of potential development because of greenhouse gas emissions and climate change. If uh, Australia is thinking about net zero by 2050, then it definitely is thinking that we don't need a, a Beetaloo Basin development. Um, so there's a real fundamental contradiction there, you know, while, while we um, have COP26. But part of the problem with Beetaloo as well is that some of the agreements that were completed for exploration there, bearing in mind that traditional owners of Aboriginal-owned land can only veto exploration, they can't veto development post-exploration. So if exploration goes ahead and is successful, they can't then turn around and uh, veto extraction. They can, they can only have a right to negotiate agreements. But Beetaloo is very complex too because while 50% of the Northern Territory is now under an inalienable freehold title under the Land Rights Act, another 25% of the Northern Territory is held uh, under native title, non-exclusive possession. And so what you have in the Beetaloo is an extraordinary complexity because you have two regimes operating there and the land rights regime is more powerful than the native title regime. And many of the traditional owners of Aboriginal land in the Beetaloo are saying that, yes, there were some agreements struck a decade ago, but that's an awful long time ago. Now they want to revisit those exploration agreements because, again, the whole issue of climate change and global warming was, had a very different national and global significance back then than it does now. At face value, what these amendments are proposing to do, this Economic Empowerment Bill, is looking to actually set up a what's called a Northern Territory Aboriginal Investment Corporation. And it's actually looking to take money out of the ABA and set up a new statutory authority that will be mainly Aboriginal control. So in a sense, face value, money is being taken out of the ABA's equity or reserves, which currently are nearly $1.4 billion dollars, and half of that amount will be allocated to Entake, the Northern Territory Aboriginal Investment Corporation. At the beginning, I said I'd been involved in a review of the ABA in 1984. There was always a sense that with time, the ABA, which holds the equivalence of royalties raised on Aboriginal land, should be under Aboriginal control. And part of this amendment package is looking to do that by at least placing half the equity held by the ABA in this new corporation. But, but the ABA itself is a very complex institution. Some of the money that goes to the ABA, 30%, is earmarked for areas affected by mining. So that, that goes straight through the ABA to communities, those traditional owner groups and areas that are directly affected by mining, places like Gove and Groot Island. Another proportion of the ABA's income goes to fund the four Aboriginal land councils. And it's only the balance that's available 
to or for the benefit of Aboriginal people in the Northern Territory. And, and one of the contentious issues in the new proposal is whether that requirement for monies to be allocated to or for the benefit of Aboriginal people historically as grants, whether that function will actually continue because this new corporation is also vested with responsibilities to invest in business and also to invest its, its equity, its, its resources to earn income. So, so it's, it's actually an, an institution, this new proposed institution, is, is one that doesn't have very clear, a very clear set of objectives. It, 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 it at once seems to emphasise economic development, but the grants from the ABA you know, historically have not just been for economic development, they've also been for social and cultural purposes. And, and in a sense, they were quite an unusual source of income for Aboriginal people in the Northern Territory. And again, we're not just talking of traditional owners of land, we're talking about Aboriginal people throughout the Northern Territory. And one of the concerns is this, this new corporation, which will have eight out of 12 directors appointed by the four land councils, will be too heavily focused on shifting monies from the ABA through the Northern Territory Aboriginal Investment Corporation to development on Aboriginal land rather than to for the benefit of Aboriginal Territorians more generally. When we look at the amount of money that has been generated in three, four decades, why are Aboriginal people still living in poverty? That's a good question. And one of the answers is that it's, it's very unclear to what extent those monies that have been allocated to the ABA over the last 43 years $4 billion have been paid to the ABA as a money royalty equivalent income. And to what extent have those monies really just offset the sorts of expenditures that governments should have been allocating to Aboriginal people as Australian citizens on the basis of need? And there is a sense, while it's, it's really very positive to have grants, and, and those grants have totaled about $600 million dollars, over those 43 years, made two or for the benefit of Aboriginal people in the Northern Territory, to what extent have they just offset allocations that government should have been making? And in fact, to what extent have they allowed governments, and here I'm talking about the Commonwealth and the Northern Territory governments, to under-invest in Indigenous people on the basis of need? So you only need to go to any remote Indigenous community to see that the level of investment and housing, education, health, employment services, uh, telecommunications, communications through roads, there's enormous underinvestment out there. And the resources that have been allocated to the ABA, which are actually Aboriginal monies from mining activity on Aboriginal land, are hopelessly inadequate to meet the need that's out there. My sense is that Aboriginal people in the Northern Territory don't even know that major changes to the Land Rights Act are about to be moved in the Parliament into new law. So the Rees Review, uh, 1998 and 1999, and the way Indigenous people reacted when major changes to the Land Rights Act were being proposed. And here we are in 2021. What Minister White calls the most significant changes 
to the Land Rights Act in 45 years are about to be enacted and many Aboriginal people and many traditional owners and many Aboriginal communities in the Northern Territory haven't even heard about these proposed amendments. And yet they're presented as being for their economic betterment. It's called the Economic Empowerment Bill and it's meant to be co-designed with Indigenous people. But, but many people haven't heard about them. And there is a Senate inquiry underway. And submissions to that inquiry, very unfortunately, in my opinion, are being rushed. If people want to make submissions, they can probably get us an extension. But nevertheless, the Senate inquiry is proposing to report on the 25th of November, you know, just in three weeks' time. And possibly these amendments will go to the next parliamentary sitting on the 29th of November, to be passed into law with what, to my mind, is unconscionable haste. It's unclear what the hurry is to get these laws passed. And, and in my view, if they get passed without proper consultation, they will really lack legitimacy in the eyes of Aboriginal people in the Northern Territory. If Aboriginal people in the Northern Territory are concerned about this massive bill, 80 pages, that's going to fundamentally alter the Land Rights Act. They should raise their voices and make uh, representations uh, to the Senate inquiry, but also to the land councils who have negotiated these changes on their behalf.